KJSU Stanford. Welcome to the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino. This is a show about economics. Deals with housing. Deals with just about anything. Deals with uh, new ideas, old ideas, etc., etc. Today on the show, we have Glenn Weil. Glenn Weil is principal researcher from Microsoft and a visiting senior research scholar in economics and law at Yale University. He has a new book, Radical Markets, co-written with Eric Posner, published by Princeton Press. Uh, welcome, Glenn. Nice to talk to you, Mark. Yeah, so uh, the book is Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society, and immediately upon it, it is uh, dedicated to William Vickery, which, I mean, that's a, a blast to me. I just love <laughs> uh, Vickery, so that's, and, and you know, you know, it's, and I guess he's kind of the guiding spirit of the book, uh, and I guess for people who aren't familiar with Vickery, uh, you know, why don't you give a little background and tell people what, what kind of uh, draws you to the spirit of, of Bill Vickery? Well, he's a fun person, and he's got some fun ideas. Uh, I We call him in the book the Master Yoda of the modern economics profession because he was sort of a quite silly, aristocratic guy. He uh, grew up in, a, um, in British Columbia, but he went to sort of a very aristocratic British boarding school, um, which I guess was sort of dying out at the time in Canada. And um, when he became a professor at Columbia, he used to roller skate from the 125th and Harlem uh, train station into the Columbia campus. And he would often spill his lunch on his shirt and walk around with it uncleaned up. Um, And he wrote a series of incredible papers, uh, some of which he's now known for and one of which he got the Nobel Prize for, but many of which uh, are almost completely forgotten to history. And uh, just sort of a remarkable uh, person, a a real follower of Henry George, which makes him very relevant uh, to this moment, but also just a visionary along all sorts of dimensions. We mentioned that actually the system that Uber uses for pricing uh, these days is inspired by a lot of his ideas. So uh, he had all sorts of influence and uh, only some of it he's remembered for. Yeah, I mean, as far as bringing creativity to the profession of economics, I mean, he considered everything to be on the table and to rethink everything. And uh, and I think a lot of that creativity goes into uh, goes into the book and the big ideas it has there about really how we could readdress a lot of the assumptions we have in society and, and run things. So I guess uh, if if people have just the quick takeaway of what kind of ideas this book contain, what, what would you tell them? The idea of the book is that, uh, paradoxically, the most extreme version of a free market is also the most thoroughgoing version of socialism. And that sounds crazy to us who grew up uh, during the Cold War, but to William Vickery and Henry George, that uh, made perfect sense. And, And the reason is that most of the property, whether it's the spectrum that we're coming to our listeners over right now, whether it's uh, the land in Stanford, is not up for sale. There's no competitive price at which you could buy that stuff. You'd have to negotiate with some big bureaucracy. 
And what uh, Vickery and George argued was that by making that common property and allowing competitive bidding for it, you'd have a truer free market, but also you'd take the value of all that property and share it equally among society. Yeah, markets, it, it's tended to get a kind of negative connotation among many who don't really know the history of saying, well, it's a, an apolo- apology for the fact that the haves have and the have-nots don't, and the markets decided. And a, a market is, is far from that. It is a tool for communication is a tool for coordination and yes i mean as you as you say here uh you know from henry george to uh, abba lerner all sorts of people have looked at a market is merely a tool for determining how things are are run and uh and i guess uh, a lot of the ideas in here uh, are about what isn't working in society and the economy today and a big thing you're looking at is the fact that the share of returns going to labor has been declining. Uh, there is, in a lot of ways, stagnation in economic growth in a way that would have surprised the economists of the mid-20th century. Uh, yeah, and and what what do we do about it? Are we really looking at new solutions? And this book is saying here are here are some ways to kind of get outside of the economic orthodoxy. Yeah, I think that our assumption. Uh, of a lot of you know the market rhetoric, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, uh, Milton Friedman, etc., saw government as the only centralized authority capable of taxing the economy and restraining the free flow of markets. But people like Henry George, people like William Vickery, realized that any centralized authority that gets too much power, whether it be a monopoly, whether it be a wealthy landowner who controls. Uh, lots of uh, uh, territory that he can keep others from using. All these people are capable of taxing the economy. And we have to take all those governments, whether we call them public or private, and reduce their ability to extract value from labor and instead return uh, uh, that value to the people who are most able to make productive use of it. Yeah, uh, you have a, a previous paper, and it's uh, also in the chapter here. Uh, property is, is another name for for monopoly. Uh, and yeah, I mean, and this goes to the idea of the idea that there is a uh, well, you know, holding cost, and there's there is basically a certain failure in a market when any private owner holds on to things and uh, in a way that hurts allocative efficiency. So, give some background on people who uh, would want to know exactly what is allocative efficiency, why does it matter, and how does private property, as it's expressed in kind of its most, uh, I guess maybe uh, the way people expect it to be can can hold it back. I think that um, we all take this for granted, but at some level we all know uh, about the waste that goes on. You look at most cities, there's a really interesting app that you can look up called City Builder. And what City Builder lets you do is choose any collection of properties in a city and say how much more would they be worth if you could get them all together and redevelop them, even holding fixed zoning. And a typical value for that, for just like, you know, a collection of plots in somewhere like San Francisco or another big city in the U.S., is like three times. So there's all sorts of resources that we as a society are underutilizing because of the rigidities of the private property system, which encourages owners to either lazily hold on to their property or, if someone wants to buy it, to try to get as much as they can out of that person, to basically troll them and prevent the use of spectrum, the use of land that could be building a hyperloop between San Francisco and L.A., uh, the use of intellectual property that could invent, you know, it could allow for new enterprises. 
to hold on to all those and to extract as much as they can, rather than allowing the fluid flow of resources to new and innovative uses. Yeah, we we talk about uh, you know the housing market a lot here, and we see the holdout problem right in our backyards a lot. I mean, you might see the case of okay, there's you're going to make a, a you know a new subway, and there's one person refuses to sell out, you can't build the subway, or it could be not just one person, but an entire community of saying we basically want to hold on to you know low density uh low density uh, development of our of our land and that in the same way is a it creates allocative inefficiencies the fact that it makes housing much more expensive to everybody else. And of course, some of those people, it really is genuinely incredibly important for them to hold onto their land. And if it is, they should be allowed to do that. But the problem is our current system doesn't reveal that. Our current system actually provides an incentive for people to pretend like they absolutely wouldn't move except at some exorbitant price, because that allows them to extract more profit from the people who are trying to do the development. The system that we propose is one in which people would have a natural incentive to reveal how valuable things are to them through a tax system so that, yes, uh, the people who really want to stay there, we'd find a way around them. And for the people who it's less important, um, they would have an incentive to move out and, and, and be compensated fairly. Yeah. I mean, uh, you talk about the crude ways people do this in the past. Eminent domain is basically saying at the end of the line, uh, the state can just say, no, you get out and here is some payment we're going to say is fair, as opposed to uh, this is kind of a step beyond based upon ideas that go back to Sun Yat-sen developing Henry George's ideas of self-assessment and saying, what is the most fair way to say how much you you value your property? It's saying, give us an honest answer. How much is it worth to you? And are you willing to basically back it up? If you are, you know, how do you run society and how do you share equitably? And largely it is about people <laughs> disclosing what things mean to them and sharing. And this is a, a kind of a, a technocratic way to deal with it, but it has ways to show that it ha- will have results of creating efficiency. Yeah, so this particular scheme that we propose is that everybody be allowed to self-declare the value of their assets, whether those be intellectual property, whether it be land, Um, uh, whether it be a spectrum, all of that, you would choose how much it's worth to you, but you'd have to stand ready to sell it at that price and you would pay a tax on that value. And so the hoarding that we were talking about, the way in which when somebody raises the price of an asset, when someone tries to keep an asset off the market, they impose a cost on everybody else who might use that, now they'd have to pay a fair compensation to the rest of society for that hoarding. Um, And they could. They could hold on to that if they wanted to, as long as they just paid for it. So rather than those costs of assets being taken away from everyone else being spread out among everyone else, instead the individual bears them. And on the other hand, the individual now has opportunities to access all sorts of assets. So rather than each of us bearing the costs of everyone else's hoarding, we bear the costs of our own hoarding, and therefore we have an incentive, if, if it makes sense for us to be more flexible, to give up on that hoarding and to make things available to others. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of making explicit something which is implicit now. There is a cost that we see in holdouts and, and underdevelopment, but in a lot of ways, 
it's invisible. You look around and you don't really see the fact that uh, you mentioned the idea of building a hyperloop or something. If you want the biggest thing holding back this or building better subways in a lot of ways is the fact, boy, it's very, very difficult to get uh, basically coordination of, of this when any single person can hold out for whatever they can get. It's, it's a known failure of a market unless it's administered right. I think um, one misperception that many people have about the history of capitalism is that what made capitalism work and, di- and be dynamic was private property rights as opposed to the flexibility to use things in new ways. Private property has existed and been enforced Uh, back thousands of years uh, in the Western tradition. Capitalism didn't ignite until people had the flexibility to sell their property and to use it for new purposes rather than to hold on to it within a family. And if you look at places like China, private property rights are actually quite weak there. What's quite dynamic there is the state's willingness to try to constantly repurpose assets to better uses. Um, If you think about what made England different from France, actually there were more absolute property rights in France, but in England there was the ability to try to repurpose them if a certain percentage of a community thought that that was a better use of the land, etc. So it's that flexibility that I think really makes for growth much more than private property protections, and that's what we need to try to lean into if we want to have a more dynamic society. Yeah, and as you say, these are ideas that at different points in history in different areas have been widely seen as just as accepted that the point of uh, state, basically, uh, you know, state intervention and basically uh, administering markets is to create good results that are fair and create good, uh, vibrant world and economies out of it, not just to say we protect property rights because they have it. It's not the fact that it's just uh, you know protecting a claim. It's the fact it leads to good uh, good things. And uh, I guess these are ideas, yeah. when you're introducing this back in the world, how do you, I guess, try to say, let's rethink of the way of what the whole purpose of markets are? Well, you know, I've come across a couple of recent examples as I've been going around talking about this. Some people who've lived their lives according to these principles in ways I didn't expect reached out to me and told me some very interesting stories. So one um, young woman reached out to me and told me that um, after reading Marie Kondo's book uh, about the life-changing magic of tidying up, she decided that um, rather than Marie Kondo has this principle that if you touch something and it doesn't give you joy, you should get rid of it. So she decided to make that more continuous. What she did is she went to every item in her apartment And she said, how much joy does this give me? And she then listed the item on eBay Hmm. at some price. So rather than having to tidy up her own apartment, she sort of let the rest of society take care of it because they would sort of every so often something would get picked off and she would just send it to the person. Yeah. Uh, And she actually found it really effective because it sort of gradually got rid of the things that she cared least for and or she would get some really high compensation for things that she cared more about, but then you know it was a windfall and she was able to buy new things. So that was a really interesting example. Another one was that a Hungarian, uh, the son of a Hungarian economist wrote to me, and apparently under communism, this Hungarian economist, every summer for about 10 years, organized summer camps that were actually governed according to the principles of this tax that I described. Hmm. And all the students who came to these summer camps had assets sort of flowing in this way. And 
initially it was surprising to them. Initially, it was a bit confusing. But they soon realized that just by setting the value high for an asset and paying everyone else back, they could hold on to it if they needed it. But on the other hand, they had so much more access to so many more opportunities within this society, and, and they became quite enthusiastic about it. Unfortunately, most of this is written up in Hungarian, but there's just an English translation of a few things. But it's quite, uh, it's quite fascinating that completely independent of any of this research or of Sun Yat-sen or any of these people, others sort of discovered similar principles on their own. Yeah, that's that's a really innovative. I don't see much innovation coming out of summer camps. That's yeah. very funny. I mean, in a summer way, like even people aren't hoarders. There's a certain idea you have. You know, you have things like I don't want to get rid of this the stuff I have. But if you're going on the road and someone's saying I'm selling it for you know a ten cents, would you even buy it? In a lot of ways, just the feeling of uh, I guess loss aversion of saying when you already have it, you're usually kind of overvalue what it <laughs> maybe how much other people would want it more than you do. I mean, I think that that's an attachment that capitalism encourages because we're so used to in our interactions in the marketplace posturing to say that the things we have are valuable. I'm not sure whether it's whether we actually value them or whether it's just a habit that we have of saying everything I have is valuable and everything everyone else has is not valuable so that I can get a better bargain. And it's that sort of monopolistic attitude that um, I think a society... Uh, like this could train out of us and that is already starting to get trained out of us by things like Airbnb and Uber and other cases where we're clinging less hard to specific possessions and more looking for opportunities to enjoy our lives. And maybe you talk about the liquidity. A lot of things are heavily illiquid here and the idea is perhaps you need to hold on to it because if you let it go, you're never going to get it back. I mean, you see things with, you know, homeowners around this area, especially, they feel, well, I better hold on to my land because if I had to start over again, boy, I wouldn't have a shot. And I think the idea of a fair society is kind of the idea, you know, if you let it go, you can get it back. It's, you know, it is a very liquid way of saying that, boy, you know, you should have the same chance at any time of kind of getting back all these things. It's more of a kind of pool of, of stuff that is, uh, that's not just to be hoarded by some, but to be you know shared in a fair manner among the many. Yeah, Henry George has a great example in his book where he talks about a banquet, and he says, you know, when you arrive at the banquet, if everybody else is taking the attitude of getting as much food on their plate as possible, so that nobody else, so that they'll be sure to get everything, then very quickly the food runs out. And a lot gets wasted. Yeah. But if everyone takes the attitude, no, I'll take what I want to eat. And, you know, then I'll come back later if I want more. Usually there's enough for everybody in the end. And we've set up a social system that's based around this principle of grabbing as much as you possibly can rather than taking what you can usefully use. Um, and that's that's led to, I think, a lot of waste and a lot of hoarding, a lot of unoccupied houses, a lot of spectrum that's sitting there with no one using it, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the scarcity of, of, of housing. Look at the vacancies. I mean, there's, there is a lot of failures in, in the markets in a way that either you can say, well, this just proves capitalism doesn't work, or it says, you know, it's this is the cost we pay as opposed to saying, hey, this is a technocratic problem we need to fix and you know, let's let's fix it. And I I, I, I from the spirit of victory and looking at new things, it's always nice to see the attitude of saying, Hey, let's make things work better. It's pretty refreshing. Well, uh 
we're we're doing our best to give people hope that we don't have to turn to discredited solutions like state socialism promoted by you know Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn in England or you know hatred against uh, minority groups as promoted by the extreme right in the U.S. and in Europe, um, but instead that we can fix the problems of society by embracing the power of opportunity and diversity rather than clinging harder to uh, our possessions. Yeah, I mean, and pick your team. Do you pick the left or the right? And the thing is, if you talk about in a lot of ways, no one is wholly wrong or wholly right, and that's a problem. If every time that Bernie Sanders says, look at all the things that are broken in the modern economy, he's absolutely right. But does that mean that he is 100% right about all solutions? In the same way, if people are saying, look at the declining, you know, what is happening to laborers in our country, and this makes me go to, you know, kind of nationalistic demagogues, I mean, they are right in a lot of ways to saying that, yeah, there's less opportunity, but are their solutions right? Maybe we just have to not choose teams in the same way and look for new solutions. Well, I think too many people have become critics and not enough people inventors. And we have a lot of good criticism and a lot of good anger in our society, but we don't have many attempts to really formulate coherent, meaningful solutions. And, you know, one difficulty I've run into with this, especially when I'm talking to these ideas with people who are not so young or maybe have more established ideas, a lot of them have a reaction like they'll they'll pick out some uh, thing like, oh, couldn't people just predate on you by taking your house and trying to... And, you know, that's not really true because the whole system is set up so that you would set a price that's above what you'd be willing to accept. So you'd always be happy when someone takes your house. But people will jump to one of these things and then they'll get stuck on that and then they'll just discard the whole thing. People have this prejudice where they don't see all the injustices in our system at present. They see something new. They find some, you know, fallacious, fallacious flaw in it. They glom onto that and then they discard it. No one would do that with technology, right? When someone has a cool new technology, people don't just dismiss it that way. People start, do startups, whatever. But when we think about a new social organization, People are incredibly conservative. They don't realize that our social institutions need to evolve and adapt and improve in the same way our technologies do, or we'll end up with whoever controls those technologies uh, you know, dominating everyone else. Yeah, I mean, we need a mixture of, of tinkerers and people who, you know, we, you always need critics. I mean, I think everyone wants to be yeah. a critic, but you need critics. But then on top of it, you need tinkerers. And I think a lot of people fear reformers because they look at a reformer and they see, oh, look, it's, it's Chairman Mao who has his little set of dictates and thinks all these must be right. And if it doesn't work, make it fit, you know. Yeah. And I think if you talk about what are real solutions, it means try to move in a path that, you know, makes things work. If it doesn't work, it is something to be improved. And across, you know, I think most things that have tended to work better, it's been the society of iteration through better, better technocratic well, and solutions. And try things on a small scale. Yeah. See how they perform. Like this uh, Hungarian economist did. Uh, see how they perform. And, you know, we have many opportunities for this. The rise of blockchain and this whole sort of decentralized alternative economy. I think it's a very interesting place to try these things out. And the Ethereum Foundation, uh, actually, which administers the second largest uh, cryptocurrency, just uh, posted a job for a full-time person to implement this idea uh, and some voting ideas uh, that are related to this that I've worked on um, 
on the Ethereum blockchain. So I think we're going to get a really interesting opportunity to see experiments and practice with these uh, technologies. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the, the national level, the Sanders versus the Trump kind of ideas. And yeah, it's decentralization is not really a rallying cry among either, but that is a big way to get to new, exciting places, is to basically spread it out and, and, and tinker. But yeah, let's talk about, uh, yeah, basically public goods and different ways to vote. A big part of this is also uh, uh, quadratic voting, and this is an idea you've, you've worked on. Um, so yeah, why don't you give some background? Uh, quadratic, quadratic voting, what is it and what will it achieve? So in our democracy, I think we all know that one person, one vote doesn't really work as a principle. Just simple majority rule would lead to all sorts of minorities being oppressed, whether those be the ones that the right defends, like gun owners or uh, those who are deeply religious, to those the left defends, like sexual minorities, immigrants, ethno-racial minorities, etc. So what we tend to do is allow judges to decide, you know, where are the boundaries, where can the majority not go? But I don't think a lot of people find that very democratic. It's not a very good way to resolve these conflicts. It just turns over to some you know, unelected elite to decide on these most contentious social issues. So um, quadratic voting has a different strategy. Quadratic voting says, no, let's lean into democracy. Let's actually give every citizen not just an equal number of votes, but an, a freedom to choose what issues are most important to them. So you'd have a budget of voice credits. But rather than having to have one vote on every issue, you could have more votes on the issues that were most important to you or about which you knew most, and fewer votes on the issues that were less important to you or about which you knew less. And so you might be wondering, what is the, where does the quadratic part come in? Well, the idea is you don't want everyone putting all their votes on the one issue that's most important to them. You want them actually to spread their votes in proportion to how important issues are. And the quadratic function says that if I want to buy four votes on an issue, I need to pay 16 credits. If I want 10 votes, I need to pay 100 credits. So that makes it increasingly costly to have votes on one thing that you care most about. And so that moderates that intensity of preference. It finds a perfect balance between, on the one hand, allowing people to express themselves, and on the other hand, avoiding single-issue voting. Yeah, that was that was a Onion article years ago. Is A person makes one very well-researched vote for president and then dozens and dozens of arbitrary votes on, on everybody else. And that's, I mean, a lot of things matters at, at different levels and different votes, but most people simply don't have the, I guess, time or predilection to say, let me focus on what matters most to me. And I think that, yeah, there's a lot of cases where you don't really get efficient outcomes because you, uh, yeah, and, and I guess this, this uh, kind of is on uh, looking at problems that Paul Samuelson addressed of the idea of saying when you're determining public goods and a pure public good is something where by definition you can have free riders like an idea of a firework in a city is a public good because everyone in the city can look at the firework uh, and you you can always scale it up uh, and if you say like who's going to pay for it there's a lot of people says I don't want to pay for the firework but I'm secretly going to I'm secretly going to watch it and and how do you basically make people be honest about voting is a hard problem and quadratic voting has a bunch of very I guess novel proofs of showing that this is efficient in having people be honest and get the public goods they really want is that is that fair to say or am I mischaracterizing some y things yeah so um on the one hand, there's the problem of uh, one person, one vote not protecting minorities. On the other hand, 
if you allowed people to just linearly buy votes, um, what would happen is the people who care the most would put things on that issue, but everyone else would say, well, yeah, I care about that, but I don't care as much as I care about something else. So let me just free ride on that issue and put everything on everything else. Quadratic voting gets exactly the balance between those, the balance between you know interest group politics and you know buying control of things on the one hand and just allowing the majority to rule even if it doesn't really care about the issue on the other. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess to to touch on the uh, some of the other big ideas on here, you have other. There's like five main ideas. You also talk about basically uh, the cost to to labor and basically productivity and innovation that come from monopoly and monopsony, and then finally the idea that big data is largely controlled and uh, agglomerating in, in a few major kind of uh, uh, you call them sirens run by the, the the tech giants today. In a lot of ways, this is a lot of value going to, to places that isn't really going back to the people who, one, produce it and, and isn't perhaps helping society uh, as much as it could in other in other situations. So you like to give some more background on what, what leads you to say these are all very important issues? Well, I think that, you know, both of those are cases of the exercise of market power, which is the power of persuasive or wealthy or otherwise concentrated interests to manipulate valuations in the economy in their own favor. And, you know, that happens through market mechanisms, like you own a bunch of companies and you're the only employer in town, so you can lower wages for workers. But it also happens just through rhetoric, and I think that that's really important in the case of data. We've been all told that our data is exhaust. It's like, you know, manure that we're just leaving behind, and and it's only valuable because companies are taking it, rather than realizing that actually all these artificial intelligence algorithms that are allegedly going to displace us are the result of our work. They're, they're being trained, these machine learning and artificial intelligence systems, on the data that we're giving to the systems. And the system isn't going to create good data unless the participants are aware of and encouraged to provide high-quality data into the system. And right now they're not because we're being you know, lied to and told that our data don't really have value and that everything's being created by these brilliant entrepreneurs and engineers and so forth rather than by uh, everyone. You know, fundamentally, this is a broader principle. I think that there is a lie that we're trying to combat in this book, which is that there's a small set of elites, educated elites, that have all the valuable things to add um, and that everybody else uh, should just follow. Yeah. And uh, that's true in voting as well. You know, you think about voting, many, you know, maybe you and I would say, well, there's a lot of ignorant people out there. Maybe they voted for a candidate who wasn't really going to serve their interests. Maybe that's true on the national stage. But I bet that you and I don't know anything about local politics, or at least I don't, (laughs) and don't know who's, you know, even what the offices are. And I make really uninformed choices on that. And there's lots of local people who know lots about that. The beauty of a market system is that it fundamentally is based on the principle that even though we have diverse abilities, we're all ultimately equal, and that we need to harness the diverse abilities of every human being uh, rather than concentrating power in some set of elites that's supposed to know better than everyone else. I guess you talk about society changing. A couple hundred years ago, 
if a person could go and they could you know swing a hammer they could do some they could do some good and that is the work that needed to be done every person had an inherent you know dignity and work and could you know contribute to the community things are changing we're interconnected in a way and in a lot of ways it's kind of it has become a winner-take-all economy. You get people who you know who end up in a market position where they have everything, and yeah, it gets the point that if you don't have a whole lot to do with your with your labor, boy, you can't really get returns. And, and you talk about data, the fact you're basically giving up something that is you know is value you've contributed that isn't coming back to you in any way. And I think I think you know over history there have been a series of lies that defend the power of the uh, wealthy and powerful. Today we call it meritocracy. They used to call it aristocracy. And we all think aristocracy is totally discredited. But aristocracy really doesn't mean anything if you look at the word itself. Different from meritocracy. It means the rule of the best. And meritocracy means the rule of those who deserve it. Right? Yeah. It's the same thing. It's just that it was a lie that you know the people who were able to go around with lances and shields and uh, kill other people were the best and the most productive people in society. And it's a lie today that those who are able to find a space like a social network, grab hold of it, and then control all the value that it creates, keeping it away from other people who want to innovate or contribute, are the best and who merit the most in our society. That that's 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 dishonest. And we need to call it what it is. It's not meritocracy that's the problem. It's the false manipulation of our concepts of merit by those in power. Is is progress a good thing? That's a question to be asked. Is it good to move forward? And a lot of people have said, you know, from the Luddites on, it's it's bad. Let's break the machines because it's going to hurt a lot of people. And the truth is, when you don't run society in an equitable way, they're not wrong. A lot of people were hurt by the first machines that the Luddites destroyed. In the same way with society now, you could say, let's just grow the pie. Growth is going to trickle down, get to everybody. But in a lot of ways, there are losers. But if you basically do things from this uh, common ownership self-assessed tax to just making sure that, you know, data ownership is, is handled. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it should basically make sure that when we all get better off, everybody actually ends up as a winner. Well, and the, the fastest rates of progress have happened in the periods where we've obeyed those principles. So there's not a conflict between that fair distribution and rapid rates of progress, there's a synergy between them. You know, uh, the 19th century saw very rapid progress, but the 19, uh, you know, 40s through the 1970s are the fastest rate of growth in wealthy countries ever. And it was because, you know, during that period, for all its flaws, we found a reasonable balance and a way to ensure that much of the growth of the economy was distributed broadly throughout the population. And we can't go back to the policies that worked then, precisely because the policies that worked then were radical innovations to keep up with the changes in the times. We need to be willing to go back to the spirit of radical innovation that underlay ideas like Henry George's, like the New Deal, et cetera, and find ways that are suited to the problems of today to ensure 
that not just technology is advancing, but our social institutions are keeping up with it. So what, what is your idea of how do you actually get from here to there when there are people who have who have a lot of reason to say, I don't want to give anything up. A lot of people have said from uh, Kalecki saying the biggest thing that has kind of like actually made sure that we have kind of equitable institutions is the fact that you're afraid that the Bolsheviks are going to come down, burn everything down, so you at least better make sure the economy is is fairish. And I guess, do you think that danger is necessary or do you think you can, through, I guess, correct proofs, and and careful, yeah, I guess you know, uh, you know, visions of the future of how things could be fair. Is that enough to convince people to say let's let's redo things? Well, I think that there's three things that have to coordinate. One is there has to be some fear, and I think that the recent election in the United States, uh, in Europe, uh, a lot of this populist movement, for all the dangers that it poses, it has some upside in that it makes us reflect on the failings of our present society, number one. Number two, people need to have hope. It, fear without hope is, uh, just leads to wars. So if, we, if people also see a vision, a hope for the future, people, something to work towards, which we're hoping to supply with this book, that can direct things in a, in a good way. But also, hope's not enough alone, because, you know, hope underlay the Bolsheviks and the French Revolution, and those did a lot of destructive things. So you also need clear, incremental ways to make progress that can channel that hope so that people can start to build a better future. And, you know, the world supplied the fear, and we're trying to supply the hope in the path. <laughs> so I guess the, the technocrats of yesteryear, do you view them as you know, successes in time? Because I, I feel you talk about William Vickery has an idea of saying, okay, if you want to uh, basically have price discovery in a in a good way in an auction, here's how you should do it. And for decades and decades, he was ignored. And eventually you saw it pop up in uh, tech companies looking at ways to better do uh, basically pricing for, for ad bids. Uh, and, you know, all sorts of other, we talk about, you know, uh, just the fact that we have one of the kind of worst electoral systems first past the post, not even something which is as optimal as some other ones, but just really just, boy, you can't do much worse than this. I mean, when society kind of looks down at all these ideas for either being too bold or radical or just being too maybe complicated, well, what, how, do you think, how do you think people can take on these ideas when I think they don't have the same sexiness as a, as a big red flag? Well, I think that uh, for young people, they hold a lot of promise. Um, I've been amazed by the way that students react to these ideas. Um, students don't have the prejudices of, you know, look, our current system is incredibly complex in a thousand ways. We just get used to it. But students aren't used to it. You know, they're coming from their family's house. They don't know all the complexities of how the world works. So this is just one of many possibilities that they're exploring. And they're open to really clear, consistent fully worked through arguments. So it's those students that I hope that these ideas will speak to. So I, I guess if there's one criticism I have the ideas, your yeah. other idea is about immigration. Yeah. And I think as opposed to the idea of saying, okay, let's look at private property, let's rethink everything. This one is, I think, more of, of a half measure for the immediate term. It says open borders is is a lot of people say it's the only morally defensible case. I, I certainly would, but it's not going to happen soon, so let's look at a, a different measure, which is more palatable. And I'd say, 
Well, I mean, that's not that's not holding you back from looking at changing common ownership of everything. So why should it hold back open borders? I think that the reason is that all of the proposals that we make, we want to have the property that they will benefit the vast majority of people in all the relevant places. We're willing to extract some resources from the very wealthy, but even there we want to make sure we grow the pie more than we redistribute. But the problem with open borders is it would not bring large benefits and probably would bring significant costs to uh, middle class and lower middle class people in wealthy countries. And we think that they are an important part of the coalition that we want to build for all of these ideas. We want the Trump voters and the Sanders voters to be part of that coalition. And simply open borders is not going to achieve that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a hard pill to say that when you feel that you're struggling in a lot of ways, that you are still benefiting from a great privilege, which is being born in America gives you privileges being born anywhere else. And a lot of people say, well, my life isn't as perfect as I want it to be. But it's a very hard pill to say, well, you have to give up your privilege. And that's a big part of the, I guess, the uh, displeasure among among the people who voted for Trump. Well, especially when immigration benefits not just the migrants, but the capitalists who are otherwise stealing from those middle class people. So I think an alternative proposal to the one that we make is that if capital within the country were more commonly owned, then uh, open borders would work fine. Yeah. (laughs) So the problem is that we wanted every proposal on its own without any of the other proposals being implemented to be something that could mobilize, uh, you know, a broad swath of people in a democratic fashion. And unfortunately, on the migration issue, the simplest solutions don't have that property. So uh, I guess there's a lot of long-term vision in here. As far as the, the middle term, like, let's give like a best-case scenario. What do you think the future of political coalitions could be to allow more of this of this new direction of basically solutions that work for everybody to to, to blossom? I think my guess is that we can start to form coalitions in the same way that someone like Emmanuel Macron in France has done, or there's a woman named Margrethe Vestager, who's the European Commissioner for Antitrust. Um, Things like data is labor, things like um, our antitrust proposals, these are things that can be implemented in the next five years, you know. These are very near-term ideas. At the same time for our bolder ideas, we can start experimenting with them over that time period. We can start introducing common ownership of the radio spectrum of publicly owned lands that are leased out for private grazing or mineral extraction and so forth. We can start using quadratic voting to do polling that allows us to identify new compromises that are possible between groups, even if we don't have the formal voting rule to ensure that those are implemented. We can use them to find those compromises and advocate for them. Um, Those are things that we can do in the near term as we make some progress in breaking down the power of capital and giving people hope through these other more incremental measures. And then as our experiments hopefully start to succeed on those other dimensions, in the next five years after that, we can start implementing those other measures at larger and larger levels. And you will have created a political coalition through those more incremental measures and through these experiments and given people hope. And then you can start scaling them up. 
Do you think that the amount of, I guess, vested interest in our current cities today, it's, I mean, it's one of the hardest things to reform because unlike other things, it's very hard to just start up a new city. Or do you think that's the way forward? Is people just saying, well, it's it's easier to, to start from scratch in a new place and show, hey, here's a city that's run, perhaps, you can say a, a difference of community land trusts and different ways of communal ownership in a way that still has private tenure people like and make it work, or do you think that reforming our existing vibrant cities is perhaps a more realistic path? I, I think, um, I, I believe in ha- letting a thousand flowers bloom, so I'd love to see charter cities experiment with this. I'd like to see cryptocurrency communities experiment with this. And I'd also like to see people gain the hope and new ideas that make larger scale change possible in the 10 to 15 year Horizon. I think those things reinforce each other. I don't think they compete with each other. I think that the inspiration from experiments will help fuel the development of broader scale political movements. And I think the hope of that broader scale change will be what gives people a a reason to do those experiments. So I, I, I believe those things are very much complementary with each other. So you could quadratic voting for sounding so complicated on on its face. There's some things about here about it being in practice when people kind of toy with it, fiddle with themselves. It has a certain kind of intuitive quality, and people catch on. Uh, and I guess could you speak on how well that's worked, and also is has this been picked up in any kind of uh, real world application so far? So we're not on the television, so I can't show you what the app looks like. But it's uh, it's sort of a fun little thing. You know, you get some credits. You have different issues you can allocate them to. And your credits run down as you start spending them on different issues. But if you spend a lot on one issue, they run down more quickly. Yeah. And so that is the intuition of uh, that gives people a sense. And, you know, if you're someone who's very educated, maybe you make a plan of exactly how you're going to use your credits and you run through them. If you have less education, maybe you... Uh, just start playing around with it and you run into constraints and then you figure it out. But uniformly across these groups, we found that people really have fun with it. They find that they learn things about what they value and what they don't value. And the person who's you know, getting the results gets a much clearer sense of what's important to people. And we've been using that for polling. Social scientists have been using it uh, as a way of measuring preference intensity. Um, we've been uh, using it uh, we were hoping to use it for uh, governance in blockchain. Uh, they're thinking a lot about that. Uh, we're hoping to use it for social aggregation and, uh, you know, say rating an Uber driver or a product, uh, ways of people in a costly validated way showing that they really care about things or, or, or don't like them. Yeah, there's a cool example here about... Uh yeah, I used to work for a summer job giving surveys over the phone. It's on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is not at all and 10 is very much. Yeah. Please rank these things. And most people, when you say that, they're like 1, 1, 10, 1, 10. And it doesn't give you really much information. Uh, if you give people the same kind of voting in a quadratic voting sense, people need to say, boy, I don't really, I mean, a 10 expensive. Do I really care that much about it? So you have to kind of spread it out in an intuitive way and you get you get better rev- you know, revealed uh, information about what people really care about. Yeah, and I think that that's another example where technology plays an amazing role in making that possible. Imagine trying to do over the phone a quadratic voting survey would be a disaster, I think. Yeah. Um, well, you have to tinker back and forth, exactly. kind of feel it out. So, yeah, yeah. It's, not a, it's not a sequential thing. In that exactly. Way. So do, 
really designing the user interface of that uh, in this digital space well was critical to making it a practical idea. I think otherwise you would have had to do some very coarse approximation, but now you can really do something quite accurate and it doesn't feel geeky at all. You don't have to talk about quadratics. You just uh, play with it. Yeah. So I, I guess uh, we're I guess we're now you know wrapping you know up the show. I'd like to, this is the Henry George program, and I guess I've seen some people uh, with the initial idea of the common ownership self assessed tax, uh, tax from a from a follower of Henry George's perspective, uh, kind of have some complaints of it, saying that it is treating all things as being taxed, whether or not it is basically land. I mean, Henry George's original idea is saying you tax things that have economic rent, such as land, and you untax things such as has capital. And this says the idea, it can be difficult to say, you have a house in Beverly Hills, how much of it is the house, how much of it is the land underneath, once you give an assessment for everything. Um, and, it, and it's not just that it's difficult to physically t t tell apart the land and the underlying. I think even more important is that there are things that operate just like land that aren't literally land. So, like, imagine that um, Vincent van Gogh left in a dumpster somewhere one of his paintings before committing suicide, and Mark Molyneux then uh, found it, right? Yeah. And took it back to his house, and now it's worth $100 million. And he doesn't even particularly like Vincent van Gogh, but he knows that if he holds on to it and puts it in his basement, eventually the Museum of Modern Art will pay him $300 million for it, right? Yeah. Um, that's a perfect example of something that's just like land, just like Henry George described it. It's perfectly scarce. Yeah. And not just that, it's also the person did nothing to create it. They just got lucky, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, technically that's not literally land. Yeah. Right? Uh, intellectual property is not literally land. It, but Spectrum it, is not literally land. But it is literally economic land, which exactly. is, I think, one of those awkward things that doesn't sound intuitive to absolutely anybody. Exactly. And so I think that what most people will find is that if you reflect on the sources of wealth in our society, why does Mark Zuckerberg, because he was the 18th person to come up with the idea of a social network, but it happened to have catched on, why is he worth uh, tens of billions of dollars? You know, why uh, is Travis Kalanick worth tens of billions of dollars? Because he didn't invent ride sharing, happened to just have a network of black cars, and then Lyft came along and he was able to steal that idea. And, you know, wh why do those people deserve all these rents? It's really no different than the land situation. So I think that once you reflect on that, once you realize that it's very hard to pinpoint exactly what is economic land, that actually the idea of taxing every asset, maybe at different rates that are related to how much they respond to investment and how scarce they are and all that sort of stuff, but taxing every asset makes a lot more sense than singling out something that's physical land and just taxing that. Yeah, and I guess the, the trade-off that's made in here is saying that there is allocative efficiency, which we talked about earlier, and also investment efficiency of saying, let's say that you have a depreciating capital and you, uh, if you taxed it all the way, let's say you're living in an apartment and you tax it basically so you can't even, it, it's so, I mean, you, you own it and you're trying to run it out and you get taxed, so it doesn't, you, you might as well let it rot. You might as well say, I'm not going to, if, if I'm going to be taxed away everything I made on it, I'm not going to maintain it. So if you tax at a lesser rate to keep in, tra uh, keep in, uh, in line the fact that you have to 
pay into it to keep it basically not depreciating at certain rates, this leads it to actually be somewhat, uh, I guess, uh, efficient to have it at a at a rate in between. Yeah, exactly. So we we want everything to be taxed in proportion to how much it's like land, rather than for land to be taxed and nothing else to be taxed. Right. Yeah. And and that's I think the more sophisticated version of Henry George's ideas. I think spiritually he's right, but the details are things that have been worked out by Vickery and by others in, in the years that have come. I, I think the only thing I feel is I hope it doesn't get lost in the murk because you're talking about taxing things at a different level. I think the one thing you talk about that doesn't have uh, basically the same kind of investment efficiency losses is something where you... I mean, location in an urban area is kind of a really fringe case. Like, you talk about land and farmland, you still need to make sure you keep it the topsoil. But you talk about a location in a city, you actually can tax that at very, very close to 100% and still not have any dead weight in, a, in a investment efficiency. Yeah, but the thing I would say is that you can get full efficiency from that without taxing it at 100%. It turns out that with this mechanism, if you just tax it at the rate at which the asset turns over to new uses, yeah, um, you get full efficiency that way. So you you can get a lot of efficiency without going all the way to 100% tax, uh, which is quite uh, interesting and a little bit different than the intuition that George or, or directly Vickery had. So, so one question I have is a bit technical. The turnover rate you're talking about, is this exogenous? Is this something that actually is supposed to exist outside of the mechanism of this tax, or do you think that is something that depends upon the way you implement so the tax? So the more you put on the tax, the higher the turnover rate will be, because right now there's monopoly on land, and that stops it from turning over to its best uses. So the turnover rate will rise as you impose the tax. And roughly what we advocate is that for assets that you know depend a lot on investment, you should tax them something like the current turnover rate, Whereas assets more like location in a city, you should tax them at the turnover rate that would prevail at the equilibrium where the tax has been in, in place, hmm. which might be, say, twice the current turnover rate. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is a good example of saying in a world where people are tinkering, you go back and forth and you talk about details and you try to, to iron them out. And uh, as opposed to basically saying, OK, let's just throw this whole book out the window because I disagree with, yeah. with, with a detail. Uh, I mean, do you think you talk about there's a lot of hope you see with people who are students, with people who are, you know, n- you know, kind of seeing the world with fresh eyes. Do you think a lot of people you can still reach to them, even if they are a bit hardened? Or do you think that it's really about driving in for the right tribe of the kind of technocratic, perhaps wonkish, but really uh, basically they care about justice and making things fair? Well, I think it's a back and forth. I think, you know, you can't ro- roll out the older generation too much. They have a lot of prejudices. But when they see that younger people who don't have those prejudices are opening their minds to things, I think they'll come around to a significant extent. And we've gotten a quite enthusiastic response from a variety of outlets, including The Economist wrote a, a wonderful uh, review. But it sort of said, this stuff is fascinating but kind of crazy. But I think as it gets more broadly um, adopted by open-minded people... Uh, they'll say, well, it's crazy, but it might be crazy enough to work, you know? Yeah. So uh, my hope is that uh, science will advance not just one death at a time, but uh, one hopeful student at a time as well, you know? 
Yeah, and before wrapping up, I, I should mention that yeah, the book is, is not just you. It's also Eric Posner is a co-author. Uh, what exactly was your process as far as did you – there is specialization in different topics that you each care about more, or do you both care equally about all these topics? We, we, we went back and forth on everything. We developed it. We have different attitudes. I have sort of an idealistic – uh, sort of um, hopeful perspective. Eric has more of a disillusionment with past ways of looking at things and the desire to break out of the conventional wisdom. Um, and so he has more of a sort of cynical, tempered perspective, and I have a little bit more of a hopeful, forward-looking, optimistic <laughs> perspective. He has more of the legal, detailed perspective. I have more of the grand design perspective. Uh, and so those were very useful things to sort of keep in mind as we went through all of this. Yeah, so I, I guess as one final question is wrapping up. Uh, I mean, you, you're you brimming with optimism how things could be better. Uh, how do you sell that optimism to someone who I think just <laughs> needs more of it in their lives? Well, I think that um, in some ways the more uh, disappointed you are about what's happened, the more optimistic you should be about what's possible. Uh <laughs> Uh, failures in a society can be a source of pessimism. They can also be a source of untapped opportunity. And uh, I think that all of us who feel that our societies are not living up to their potential should be excited to look for new ways uh, to organize things. Well, fantastic. We've talked to Glenn Wilde. The book is Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Mark. Okay, cool. Gaze, yes, you're Stanford. This has been the Henry George Program with class, with guest Glenn Weil. You can listen to this and all previous episodes of the show on our website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KJSU Stanford. 